0: Welcome to Knox Bedtime Stories. I'm your friend Joey, here with another episode to help you relax, feel safe, and fall asleep. It's 2am here and a bit chilly. I hope you had a wonderful holiday and are feeling well this last week of December. I saved a space for you here next to the fireplace and have a story for you tonight called The Mark on the Wall by Virginia Woolf. I really enjoyed this story and I think you will too. You were in the head of a woman sitting by the fireside on a cold winter's day. She spots some sort of mark on the wall, five or six inches above the mantelpiece. How did it get there? What could it be? Comfortable where she is, she has not that energy nor the desire to get up and check it out. Her thoughts wander, leaving that little mark behind. Shakespeare. Freedom. The elusiveness of knowledge. The world outside. Nature. All this she contemplates. Her meandering recollections of nature are what I like best. I would like to thank our newest patron, Bastel. I also posted her name at knoxbedtimestories.com on the Patreon supporters list. Thank you so much for helping the podcast become sustainable. I don't think many people know that besides the 30 to 40 hours a week I work on the podcast for free. I also pay for my webpage and podcast hosts. So, right now I actually lose money every month, so every dollar helps. I started posting patron-exclusive stories on Patreon last week, and will post another episode there sometime this week. If you enjoy the podcast and find it helpful, please subscribe and leave me a kind review on Apple Podcasts or whatever program you use to listen on. You can also support the podcast by becoming a patron for as little as a dollar a month and join the growing list of supporters. There are various tiers and rewards which include exclusive episodes. Or share your favorite episode on Facebook or Twitter maybe somebody else will find the podcast helpful. Tonight, instead of a good news story or lecturing you on what your new year's resolution should be, I found this amusing little joke called a man has been drinking all day at the bar. A man has been drinking all day at a local bar and checks his watch. It's 1 30 a.m. Rats. I need to go home now or my wife's going to kill me, he thinks to himself. But as he's trying to get up, he falls awkwardly on the floor. I'm just way too drunk right now, I need to sober up. So he asks the bartender for a coffee. He drinks it up and 30 minutes later, he tries to stand up. But again, falling to the floor, this time even harder. At this point, he realizes he needs to get home no matter what, so he starts crawling towards his house. After 40 minutes, he gets there, lays down next to his sleeping wife, and passes out. The next morning, his wife wakes him up and starts shouting at him. So, how was last night, huh? Was it fun drinking all day? The man is certain his wife was asleep when he got home, so he tries to play it cool. Not really, just hanging with some co-workers. We didn't drink much, just a couple of beers. His wife starts nodding sarcastically in response. The bar owner called this morning. You left your wheelchair there. I hope you found that amusing. The only New Year's resolution advice I'm going to give you is don't take a laxative and a sleeping pill on the same night. Nothing good can come from it. Alright, let's get to tonight's story, The Mark on the Wall, set to relaxing music and this beautiful fireplace. If you're not already laying down, please do so now in whatever way is comfortable. And let's begin. Perhaps it was the middle of January in the present year that I first looked up and saw The Mark on the Wall. In order to fix a date, it is necessary to remember what one saw. So now I think of the fire, the steady film of yellow light upon the page of my book, the three chrysanthemums in the round glass bowl on the mantelpiece. Yes, it must have been the winter time, and we had just finished our tea, for I remember that I was smoking a cigarette when I looked up and saw the mark on the wall for the first time. I looked up through the smoke of my cigarette, and my eye lodged for a moment upon the burning coals, and that old fancy of the crimson flag flapping from the castle tower came into my mind, and I thought of the whole cavalcade of red knights riding up the side of the black rock. Rather, to my relief, the sight of the mark interrupted the fancy, for it is an old fancy, an automatic fancy made as a child perhaps the mark was a small round mark black upon the white wall about six or seven inches above the mantelpiece how readily our thoughts swarm upon a new object lifting it a little way as ants carry a blade of straw so feverishly then leave it if that mark was made by a nail it can't have been for a picture it must have been for a miniature. The miniature of a lady with white powdered curls, powder-dusted cheeks, and lips like red carnations. A fraud, of course, for the people who had this house before us would have chosen pictures in that way. An old picture for an old room. That is the sort of people they were. Very interesting people. And I think of them so often in such queer places, because one will never see them again, never know what happened next. She wore a flannel dog collar around her throat, and he drew posters for an oatmeal company. And they wanted to leave this house because they wanted to change their style of furniture, so he said. And he was in the process of saying that, in his opinion... Art should have ideas behind it when we were torn asunder, as one is torn from the old lady about to pour out tea and the young man about to hit the tennis ball in the back garden of the suburban villa, as one rushes past in the train. But as for that mark, I'm not sure about it. I don't believe it was made by a nail after all. It's too big, too round for that. I might get up, but... If I got up and looked at it, ten to one, I shouldn't be able to say for certain, because once a thing's done, no one ever knows how it happened. Oh dear me, the mystery of life, the inaccuracy of thought, the ignorance of humanity, to show how very little control of our possessions we have, what an accidental affair this living is after all our civilization. Let me just count over a few of the things lost in one lifetime. Beginning, for that seems always the most mysterious of all losses. What cat would gnaw? What rat would nibble? Three pale blue canisters of bookbinding tools. Then, there were the birdcages, the iron hoops, the steel skates, the queen and coal scuttle, the bogatel board, the hand organ, all gone, and jewels too. Opals and emeralds, they lie about the root of turnips. What a scraping-pairing affair it is to be for sure. The wonder is that I've any clothes on my back, that I sit surrounded by solid furniture at this moment. Why, if one wants to compare life to anything, one must liken it to being blown through the tube at 50 miles an hour landing at the other end without a single hairpin in one's hair, shot out at the feet of God entirely naked, tumbling head over heels in the asphodel meadows, like brown paper parcels pitched down a chute in the post office, with one's hair flying back like the tail of a racehorse. Yes, that seems to express the rapidity of life, the perpetual waste and repair. Also casual, also haphazard. But after life, the slow pulling down of thick green stalks so that the cup of flower, as it turns over deluges one with purple and red light. Why, after all, should one not be born there as one is born here? Helpless, speechless, unable to focus one's eyesight, groping at the roots of the grass... At the toes of the giants? As for saying which are trees, and which are men and women, or whether there are such things that one won't be in condition to do for fifty years or so, there will be nothing but spaces of light and dark, intersected by thick stalks, and rather higher up, perhaps, rose-shaped blots of an indistinct color, dim pinks and blues, which will, as time goes on, become more definite, become, I don't know what, and yet, that mark on the wall is not a hole at all. It may even be caused by some round black substance, such as a small rose leaf, left over from the summer, and I not being a very vigilant housekeeper. Look at the dust on the mantelpiece, for example, the dust which, so they say, Buried Troy three times over, only fragments of pots utterly refusing annihilation, as one can believe. But I know a housekeeper, a woman with the profile of a policeman, those little round buttons marked even upon the edge of her shadow. A woman with a broom in her hand, a thumb on picture frames, an eye under beds, and she talks always of art. She is coming nearer and nearer, and now, pointing to certain spots of yellow rust on the fender, she becomes so menacing that to oust her, I shall have to end her by taking action, I shall have to get up and see for myself what that mark, but no, I refuse to be beaten, I will not move, I will not recognize her, see, she fades already. I am very nearly rid of her and her insinuations, which I can hear quite distinctly, yet she has about her the pathos of all people who wish to compromise, and why should I resent the fact that she has a few books in her house, a picture or two, but what I really resent is that she resents me, life being an affair of attack and defense after all. Another time I will have it out with her, not now. She must go now. The tree outside the window taps very gently on the pane. I want to think quietly, calmly, spaciously. Never to be interrupted. Never to have to rise from my chair. To slip easily from one thing to another without any sense of hostility or obstacle. I want to sink deeper and deeper away from the surface, with its hard, desperate facts. To steady myself, let me catch hold of the first idea that passes. Shakespeare. Well, he will do as well as another. A man who sat himself solidly in an armchair and looked into the fire, so a shower of ideas fell perpetually from some very high heaven down through his mind he lent his forehead on his hand and people looking in through the open door for this scene is supposed to take place on a summer's evening but how dull this is this historical fiction doesn't interest me at all i wish i could have hit upon a pleasant track of thought a track indirectly reflecting credit upon myself For those are the pleasantest thoughts and very frequent even in the minds of modest mouse-colored people who believe genuinely that they dislike to hear their own praises. They are not thoughts directly praising oneself. That is the beauty of them. They are thoughts like this. And then I came into the room. They were discussing botany. I said how I'd seen a flower growing on a dust heap on the site of an old house in Kingsway. The seed, I said, must have been sown in the reign of Charles I. What flowers grew in the reign of Charles I, I asked, but I don't remember the answer. Tall flowers with purple tassels to them, perhaps. And so it goes on. All the time I'm dressing up the figure of myself in my own mind lovingly stealthily not openly adoring it for if I did that I should catch myself out and stretch my hand at once for a book in self-protection indeed it is curious how indistinctly one protects the image of oneself from idolatry or any other handling that could make it ridiculous or too unlike the original to be believed in any longer or is it not so very curious after all? It is a matter of great importance. Suppose the looking glass smashes, the image disappears, and the romantic figure with the green of the forest depths, all about it is there no longer, but only that shell of a person which is seen by other people. Wooden, airless, shallow, bald, prominent world it becomes. A world not to be lived in, As we face each other in omnibuses and underground railways, we are looking into the mirror. That accounts for the expression in our vague and almost glassy eyes. And the novelists in future will realize more and more the importance of these reflections. For of course, there is not one reflection, but an almost infinite number. Those are the depths they will explore. Those are the depths they will explore. Those are the phantoms they will pursue. Leaving the description of reality more and more out of their stories. Taking a knowledge of it for granted, as the Greeks did in Shakespeare perhaps. But these generalizations are very worthless. The military sound of the word is enough. It recalls leading articles, cabinet ministers... A whole class of things indeed which, as a child, one thought of the thing itself, the standard thing, the real thing, from which one could not depart save at the risk of nameless damnation. Generalizations bring back somehow Sunday in London, Sunday afternoon walks, Sunday luncheons, and also ways of speaking of the dead, clothes and habits like the habit of sitting all together in one room until a certain hour, although nobody liked it. There was a rule for everything. The rule for tablecloths at that particular period was that they should be made of tapestry with little yellow compartments marked upon them, such as you may see in photographs of the carpets in the corridors of the royal palaces tablecloths of a different kind were not real tablecloths. How shocking and yet how wonderful it was to discover that these real things, Sunday luncheons, Sunday walks, country houses, and tablecloths were not entirely real, were indeed half phantoms, and the damnation which visited the disbeliever in them was only a sense of illegitimate freedom. What now takes the place of those things? I wonder, those real standard things. Men, perhaps? Should you be a woman? The masculine point of view which governs our lives? Which sets the standard? Which establishes Whitaker's table of precedency? Which has become, I suppose, since the war, half a phantom to many men and women? Which soon one may hope will be laughed into the dustbin where the phantoms go, the mahogany sideboards and landseer prints, gods and devils, hell and so forth, leaving us all with an intoxicating sense of illegitimate freedom, if freedom exists. In certain lights, that mark on the wall seems actually to project from the wall, nor is it entirely circular. I cannot be sure, but it seems to cast a perceptible shadow, suggesting that if I ran my finger down that strip of the wall, it would at a certain point mount and descend a small tumulus, a smooth tumulus like those barrows on the south downs which are, they say, either tombs or camps. Of the two, I should prefer them to be tombs, desiring melancholy like most English people, and finding it natural at the end of a walk to think of the bones stretched beneath the turf. There must be some book about it. Some antiquary must have dug up those bones and given them a name. What sort of man is an antiquary, I wonder? Retired colonels, for the most part? I dare say leading parties of aged laborers to the top here examining clods of earth and stone and getting into correspondence with the neighboring clergy, which being opened at breakfast time gives them a feeling of importance, and the comparison of arrowheads necessitates cross-country journeys to the county towns, an agreeable necessity both to them and to their elderly wives, who wish to make plum jam or to clean out the study and have every reason for keeping that great question of the camp or the tomb in perpetual suspension. While the colonel himself feels agreeably philosophic in accumulating evidence on both sides of the question, it is true that he does finally incline to believe in the camp and being opposed casts all his arrowheads into one scale, and being still further opposed indicts a pamphlet which he is about to read at the quarterly meeting of the local society when a stroke lays him low, and his last conscious thoughts are not of wire or child, but of the camp in that arrowhead there, which is now in the case at the local museum together with the hand of a Chinese murderess, a handful of Elizabethan nails, a great many tunor clay pipes, a piece of Roman pottery, and the wine glass that Nelson drank out of, proving I really don't know what. No, no, nothing is proved, nothing is known. And if I were to get up at this very moment, and ascertain that the mark on the wall is really, what shall we say? The head of a gigantic old nail, driven in two hundred years ago which is now, owing to the patient attribution of many generations of housemaids, revealed its head above the coat of paint, and is taking its first view of modern life in the sight of a white-walled firelit room. What should I gain? Knowledge? Matter for further speculation? I can think sitting still as well as standing up. And what is knowledge? What are our learned men save the descendants of witches and hermits, who crouched in caves and in woods brewing herbs, interrogating shrew mice, and writing down the language of the stars? And the less we honor them as our superstitions dwindle, and our respect for beauty and health of mind increases. Yes, one could imagine a very pleasant world, a quiet, spacious world with the flowers so red and blue in the open fields. A world without professors or specialists or housekeepers, with the profiles of policemen. A world which one could slice with one's thought as a fish slices the water with his fin raising the stems of the water lilies, and hanging suspended over nests of white sea eggs. How peaceful it is down here, rooted into the center of the world and gazing up through the gray waters, with their sudden gleams of light and their reflections. If it were not for Whitaker Almanac, if it were not for the table of precedency, I must jump up and see for myself what that mark on the wall really is. A nail? A rose leaf? A crack in the wood? Here is nature once more at her old game of self-preservation. This train of thought, she perceives, is threatening mere waste of energy, even some collision with reality, for who will ever be able to lift a finger against Whitaker's table of precedency? the Archbishop of Canterbury is followed by the Lord High Chancellor. The Lord High Chancellor is followed by the Archbishop of York. Everybody follows somebody, such is the philosophy of Whitaker, and the great thing is to know who follows whom. Whitaker knows, and let that so nature counsels comfort you, instead of enraging you. And if you can't be comforted, If you must shatter this hour of peace, think of the mark on the wall. I understand nature's game, her prompting to take action as a way of ending any thought that threatens to excite or to pain. Hence, I suppose, comes our slight contempt for men of action, men we assume who don't think. Still, there's no harm in putting a full stop of one's disagreeable thoughts, by looking at a mark on the wall indeed now that i have fixed my eyes upon it i feel i have grasped a plank in the sea i feel a satisfying sense of reality which at once turns the two archbishops and the lord high chancellor to the shadows of shades here is something definite something real thus Waking from a midnight dream of horror, one hastily turns on the light and lies quiescent, worshipping the chest of drawers, worshipping solidity, worshipping reality, worshipping the impersonal world which is a proof of some existence other than ours. That is what one wants to be sure of. Wood is a pleasant thing to think about it comes from a tree and trees grow and we don't know how they grow for years and years they grow without paying any attention to us in meadows and forests and by the side of rivers all things one likes to think about the cows swish their tails beneath them on hot afternoons they paint rivers so green that when a moorhen dives One expects to see its feathers all green when it comes up again. I like to think of the fish balanced against the stream like flags blown out, and of water beetles slowly raising domes of mud upon the bed of the river. I like to think of the tree itself. First, the close dry sensation of being wood. Then, there is grinding of the storm. Then, the slow delicious ooze of sap. I like to think of it too on winter's nights, standing in an empty field with all leaves close-furled, nothing tender exposed to the iron bullets of the moon, a naked mast upon an earth that goes tumbling, tumbling all night long. The song of birds must sound very loud and strange in June, and how cold the feet of insects must feel upon it as they make laborious progresses up the creases of the bark, or sun themselves upon the thin green awning of the leaves, and look straight in front of them with huge diamond-cut red eyes. One by one the fibers snap beneath the immense cold pressure of the earth. Then, the last storm comes and falling the highest branches drive deep into the ground again. Even so, Life isn't done with. There are a million patient, watchful lives still for a tree. All over the world in bedrooms and ships, on the pavement. Lining rooms where men and women sit after smoking their cigarettes. It is full of peaceful thoughts, happy thoughts, this tree. I should like to take each one separately, but something is getting in the way. Where was I? What has it all been about? A tree? A river? The downs? Whitaker's almanac? The fields of Asphodel? I can't remember a thing. Everything's moving, falling, slipping, vanishing. There is a vast upheaval of matter. Someone is standing over me and saying, I'm going out to buy a newspaper. Yes, Though, it's no good buying newspapers. Nothing ever happens. Curse this war. God damn this war. All the same, I don't see why we should have a snail on our wall. Ah, the mark on the wall. For it was a snail. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and found it helpful, please leave me a kind review on Apple Podcasts It improves the show's rankings and helps others find it. You can also help by supporting the podcast via Patreon at NoxBedtimeStories.com and clicking on the Patreon link or Patreon.com forward slash NoxBedtimeStories. I wish you all a wonderful night's sleep and a happy peaceful life. Good night.